Can you take this back to the dem back there? I'll turn this back on over here. Do I need to turn these back on? This is a quick poll. Do I need to turn that back on? No? Okay. All right. All right. Uh, you can turn. We're going to be in a couple places. It will be starting in John 4, verse 7. I mentioned last week that uh, uh, this week and, and next week um, are, are my final two weeks before going on sabbatical for the, for the summer. And um, wanted to just take a second and, and help you understand, hopefully, that um, this is not about me um, just getting a long vacation, um, that I'm my hope and my prayer is that, uh, that this is about us together, that God is, I've been here over seven and a half years, that there is a temptation to, to just sort of recline and to, to level off and to flatten off. And I don't want that for me personally, and I don't want that for us as a people together. And I would like you to be praying with me for the next three months, for the summer, we want to pray um, that God will prepare us and lead us for the next season of our church's life. That we, we've grown. I mean, we are here. Um, and we need to, to adjust and to change and to move forward if we're going to keep going forward. Because there's really one option as a church. There's two options. We, we keep going with Jesus or we go backwards and we die. There is no hang out and rest option. That's really option two. And we're not immune from that. I'm not immune to that. I feel that right now at this time in my life. We want to pray that we press on and keep going. I know one of the things that's going to be my main focus in reading and prayer is, is how we disciple people, how we help people grow up in Jesus. And what we're doing. And I'd appreciate you praying for me as I, as I pray about that. We need to pray what it looks like for us just structurally to be a bigger church than we have ever been in our life. How does that work for us um, as a team together, as leaders, as elders? So would you pray for that as well? Um, again, we're still going to keep on going through this summer. Um, our elders are, are here. They're not going anywhere. We're taking care of people. Our deacons are alive and well and active. Um, we'll have uh, contact information for you that anytime, anything that you need, that can still happen. Um, and certainly, I'll be praying with you and for you, even if I'm not here in the moment. We have some great folks that are going to be preaching for, for us this summer, and I have full confidence in them and and what will happen on Sunday mornings as well. So I hope that you and I can feel like we're on the same page together to some degree and that we'll see that at the end of the summer and going forward. Um, this last uh, week, I, I started this little three-week series based on Acts 1-8. Uh, if that's unfamiliar to you, um, it's when Jesus is, is about to ascend and he tells 
his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And uh, that instruction to be in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth is actually how the book of Acts is structured and organized to show you how the apostles did that in those regions and how we can take that on as instruction ourselves for how we should be on mission with Jesus. Uh, Last week we talked about Jerusalem and Judea, how God calls us where we are, to our neighborhood, to our neighbors, and the cost of that. And and this week we're going to look at what it means to be called to Samaria. So we're going to start in uh, John chapter 4 in this story of Jesus with this woman of Samaria. John chapter 4 verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For, Jesus, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now if you would turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Just a few verses here. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. These... uh, These two stories come from this contentious place in the ancient Near East. Uh, If you you don't know, uh, Samaria is 
is a walkable distance from Jerusalem and Judea. It is right there. It would have been easy to walk from Jerusalem through Samaria, north up into Galilee where Jesus was from. And Samaria was this region in in this place that is somehow there in the middle of what seems like Israel, but is not Israel in a lot of ways. Because in Samaria, Samaritans have this long history at this point, several centuries of history of division away from the people of Israel. Because Samaritans intermarried with non-Israelites. And so in some sense, they committed this spiritual betrayal. They were forbidden to intermarry with non-Israelites, and they did it in Samaria. And so there's this diversion culturally, religiously. And so Jews view Samaritans with disgust because Samaritans are betrayers, and they have intermingled where they should not. So Samaritans were to be avoided at all costs. So that's why uh, when you read the, the story of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus is telling the story of a Good Samaritan, the response of the Jewish listener is, there is no such thing. There is no Good Samaritan. There are Samaritans, and they are not good. But the road can pass through Samaria, and if you're going from Jesus' home region in Galilee down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem geographically, uh, you have to, you can pass right through there, but they would try to pass through Samaria as quickly as possible so they're not even sharing soil with these people. And Jesus comes to Samaria and he stops and he sits by their well alone while his disciples go look for food. And in the middle of the day, the text says, this woman is there at the well by herself. And this is just not done. This woman is there at the wrong time of day, and she is by herself. This woman should not be collecting water that she has to then trek all the way back into town with in the middle of the day, quite simply because it is too hot to be doing that. It is hot in Palestine. It is hot in the ancient Near East. You don't do this task in the middle of the day. You do it in the morning when it is cool. But here she is, and she is alone. Why? Why is she alone? That's what you're supposed to think. Why is she doing this at this time in this place? And then Jesus starts talking to her, and that alone is breaking all kinds of cultural norms. Jewish men did not talk to women one-on-one by themselves, period. Did not happen. Not allowed. Taboo. Forbidden. The implications of that act alone are decidedly sexual in perception. That's why they did not do that. And Jesus walks into this conversation, not with just a woman who's a woman by herself, but a Samaritan woman. And Jesus starts talking to her and having this dialogue with her and offers to her, offers himself as a source of living water. Now, we take that as a weird phrase, living water. 
and we say this clearly has to be some sort of spiritual metaphor, and we know that Jesus ultimately is going to some spiritual place, but that phrase living water also just for her means running water. So a creek is living water. And so Jesus is offering to her a source of living water instead of coming to the well or cistern and pulling stagnant water out. He's saying, I can give you living water. And she's like, I am interested in what you are offering. That would be a lot easier than what I am currently doing. And then he says that it's a a source of living water that never runs out. And she's like, this is great. This sounds awesome. Because the concept of a faucet in the house doesn't exist yet. So that a source of living, moving water that never runs out, that never requires her to trek outside in the sun and come back out, come back home with this heavy load of water. This is perfect. This is ideal. And Jesus says, go get your husband. And then the, cold, the, the conversation just sort of pivots radically. Because she says, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus demonstrates that he knows exactly why she is alone in the heat, in the middle of the day. He says, I know you don't. You've had five husbands. And the woman that, the man that you're with is not your husband. And this woman very astutely says, kind of get the sense that you're a prophet. Yeah, no joke. And what, what does this woman do but what we all do? So this is awkward. Um, How about the weather? How about that? Or in this case, how about this theological controversy that our two people have, us Samaritans and Jews? Where should we be worshiping? And Jesus uh, is so adept. He he receives her, her distraction, seemingly, and can pivot away and back to where he wants to get with her. He says, yeah, you're right. There's a controversy here about where we should worship and who who should worship where. But there's something different that's coming. When when people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and that day is at hand. And the woman says, I know that one day God's going to send the Christ. And Jesus says, I am speaking with you, is he. I'm, I'm him. I'm the one. And that is so unique for Jesus to say in John's gospel. One of the dominant themes of John's gospel is people's misunderstanding of who he is and how Jesus lets them misunderstand. Where where we read the conversations backwards and we understand what he's trying to say, but in the moment, he doesn't always correct people. But with this woman... He opens himself in full self-disclosure and say, I am the Christ. And he's saying it to this woman who is alone because of her shame. Make no mistake, this woman is either alone in the middle of the day gathering water because she doesn't want to deal with the women who are talking about her, Or because the women have said, you are not welcome to come in the morning. Because they know her past. This woman is is decidedly damaged goods. In, In this day and time, we don't know exactly what happened. Because this woman could have been passed off and divorced for almost no reason. And because she's been left once, twice, three times, four times, 
five times. She has, by circumstance and force of social pressure, no recourse but to be with any man who will take her in. She has culturally no value. She's slept with now six men. And we don't, oftentimes, unfortunately, people have come to this text and just assumed that she is the one that has been unfaithful. And we just don't know that that's true. The point, though, is not that she was unfaithful or he was unfaithful or some mixture of both, but that everyone views her the way that you and I might do by habit. She is a loose woman. This is her reputation now and forever. A woman bound by shame to a past that she cannot escape. And Jesus meets with this Samaritan woman and breaks all of these social conventions to tell her the plain truth of who he is. And you can tell the audacity of what he has done when this woman leaves to go back to town and tell people about Jesus because his disciples walk up and the text tells you they're just kind of like, what is going on here? You can't do this. In this one instance, the disciples actually kind of bite their tongues, which credit to them, that doesn't always happen. But in this instance, they, they're, they're kind of be like, Jesus, do you, kind of, do you know it? Do you know where we are? Do you know what you just did? And Jesus is fully aware of what he has done. And this woman turns back to her city. And these people that she was not able to be around to draw water she goes back to this town and she, she tells them, you've got to come meet Jesus. You've got to come meet this guy from Nazareth. He's told me everything that I've ever done. You need to come meet him. Flash forward to Acts chapter 8. After, after everything, after the rest of Jesus' life, his death on the cross and his resurrection, And Philip, one of these deacons, these servants, goes to this region, goes to Samaria, and says, starts doing the work of the kingdom, proclaiming the identity of Jesus. And what's the response in Samaria? This widespread acceptance and response to the good news of Jesus where the paralyzed are healed, the demonically oppressed are set free in the city response. Now, there's, there's no link between John 4 and Acts 8 other than that they are both in Samaria, which isn't that, very, that, isn't that big of a region, aren't that many cities, and that we don't know that this is the same place at all. But in these two stories we see Jesus' care and attention for the people of Samaria, the region of Samaria. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples, these Jewish men, all of them, to go from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria. 
to the end of the earth. Now, Samaria, like I said, is within walking distance from Jerusalem and Judea. It is a short trip north from Jerusalem up to Samaria. Samaria is a region that is geographically proximate, but culturally, religiously, across a canyon. And the question is for us, if Jesus is the God who meets the woman at Samaria and would tell his disciples to likewise go to Samaria, who in our valley are the Samaritans to whom we are called? And it is especially helpful to ask that question in light of the woman from Samaria in John chapter 4. She is, to some degree, theologically confused at best. There is some real theological divergence between the Samaritans and the Jews. They have an alternative Pentateuch. They have alternative places of worship, alternative sacrificial systems. There's real theological drift there. And she is morally compromised. And so our question, as we look at John chapter 4 and Acts chapter 8, who in our valley are those who we consider theologically distant from us and morally unapproachable? And then to take that understanding and to say, those are the people that Jesus has called us to. And of all the things that Jesus says in his instructions in Acts 1-8, Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, the call to Samaria is the most unsettling, I would argue. Because it is so close, and yet so uncomfortable and disruptive. And I have to confess, I think that of all the ways the church has, Big C Church, has succeeded or failed in our culture, we have been most adept at swerving away from Samaritans. Because let me tell you who Samaritans are. They're people who hate God. They're people who have questions about God. They're people who have different ideas about God, who have a hard time with what we are saying about Jesus. Samaritans in our day and time are people bound by sexual shame, even if they don't know they have it, who sleep with a lot of people, who sleep with the wrong people. Samaritans are people who are culturally different from us, have a different skin color, a different language. And all of these classes of people are right around us in this valley. And what the church has largely done in this place and a lot of places in America is sidestepped these people. Unfortunately, it has been the case that Samaritans in our midst, the culturally different, the theologically off, the sexually immoral, have by and large expected us not to have a word of conversation and hope with them, but to deliver a word of condemnation. Jesus meets with a woman who is bound by shame, marked 
and dripping with sexual immorality. And he offers to her a word of hope that the God of Israel would come to her and meet her in her shame. For us then, how many of us have set aside any notion of being friends with our neighbors who are shacked up living together? How many of us have set aside friendship with our gay neighbors? Who set aside friendship with our transgender neighbors? Who set aside friendship with the the folks in the trailer park who don't speak English and we have more questions about how they got here than about the nature of their family? How many of us have set aside friendship with those people who are just a little bit too theologically that way from us? And it's not like any of us would ever say, oh, we hate those people. It's just that we would never be found at the well with them. And that is a problem. Because the well is where Jesus is. Jesus is is dealing with a, a culture of purity and impurity. Where the fear is that this unclean woman would make Jesus unclean. And this thing that Jesus does repeatedly is demonstrate he is totally immune to impurity. He is not afraid of the leper. He grabs the leper because he knows that he is the source of all cleanliness. Jesus is is not afraid of being with unclean people and afraid that their uncleanliness will, will wipe off on him. Yet how often have we, his people, lived under the fear that somehow just being in relationship, being close with people who are in all of these categories might somehow make us unclean. And the truth is that the gospel propels us to places where inside of you, you are afraid to go. Your neighbors with last names that are more like mine, Rodriguez, your neighbors, they, they are more than likely ready to open their doors and eat with you once they understand that you're probably not there to call immigration on them. This is not our job to figure out how they got here. They're just here, and they're our neighbors, and they're our friends. They should be our dinner guests. That is what our call is. You'll probably find that if you would go out of your way to make friends with those neighbors that you know are not married and they're living together, go out of your way to meet your friends that are, that are gay or lesbian or transgender, you probably find out that just like you, they're people that want a good meal and fellowship and community and a word that they too might receive living water from a source that will never fail them or run out. And those people that you might step aside from who just have those, you know, maybe they just really love like those new age crystal things or some other weird stuff like that. 
You may find that they too are hungry around 5.30 or 6 at night and they are ready to have a conversation about how hard it was and goodness gracious, isn't it hot today? And how do we do this as parents together or living in this valley and man, rent is so high. Turns out everybody has worries and concerns like this and when we meet people at the well, the place where they are ashamed and alone, places where they have been abandoned and we would be with Jesus in Samaria, we would find out that Jesus is still the God who comes to release people from spiritual bondage and to heal people who are paralyzed. People of Samaria have been neglected and alone. And what happens in Acts 8? But the gospel rushes in. Jesus demonstrates his kingly power. And those who are enslaved and infirmed are changed forever by the power of the Spirit of God. And that is not contained or confined to the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. That's a weird thing that happened. That's cool. Let's talk about the ends of the earth. I'm talking about the more uncomfortable places in our valley, the places that you're imagining, the people that you're imagining right now. Those people are people that Jesus loves and has not abandoned. Those are people who Jesus sees bound up and cast aside in shame, maybe by some of our own people, church people, big C church people, our church people. And Jesus is actually still working there because Jesus actually still loves Samaritans. And when we see Jesus and his care for us, And for all people, are we not compelled to run with him? Because when you see God's care for those who have been abandoned or marginalized or forgotten on purpose, it helps you to see and remember that you and I were once the same. You and I, Paul will say in Ephesians, were once far off. And God, by the great work of Jesus, has scooped us in close to him. You and I were the unclean ones. You and I have been bound in shame. You and I have been unfaithful. You and I have held on to deficient and unacceptable theology. You and I have been on a cultural chasm isolated from the people of God. And our testimony is that God came and got us. Because that is the nature of God. The missionary God who would come close to people who are far away. When you go on mission with Jesus, you do so out of a spirit of worship of Jesus. If Jesus is this way, how great and glorious is he? And shouldn't everyone know? Shouldn't everyone hear? Shouldn't everyone be invited to his table? My my invitation to you is twofold. Reconsider, reflect upon, where you were when Jesus came and found you. The darkness of your sin and shame. 
the demons that have oppressed you, the paralysis that set into your soul, and what Jesus did to heal you and to free you. And to two, think about the people that you avoid. Think about them in their face, their life that you know of. And to consider what does it look like for you to answer the call of God to go to Samaria? What does it mean for you to step outside of what is comfortable to you and to go to people that quite honestly you find repulsive and to hear that Jesus loves them, wants to meet with them, to offer his living water, to make his home with them and to change them. What then do you do with those people and with Jesus? I cannot answer that question for you. I expect the answer to that come in a multitude of creative ways. But I can tell you this, that as a people, together as a church, it is my conviction that people that we would put in the category of Samaritans, ashamed and undesirable, are people that we should especially love and seek to meet and put at our tables with us. And I don't know how God will change them. I don't know how they will or will not respond to God's word. I don't know about that. That's not my responsibility to provoke a response out of them. My responsibility, our responsibility, is to open the door and make a seat at the table and invite them and ask them to be friends with us, to be neighbors with us, and to come hear from Jesus at the well with us. It is, it is my belief and my conviction that we will see things like the apostles saw in Acts 8. God would liberate and heal people as he brings them close into the heart of his kingdom and gives them water that will never, ever run out. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we are people who are far more comfortable with people who are just like us. And we have turned aside from people that you love so that we could be with more people who are just like us. We have avoided those who have been cast aside in shame. And we confess to you, God, that we have often played a part in that casting aside. And we are sorry. We have been afraid of being close to people who are unclean, forgetting that you are our righteousness that you took us in our uncleanliness and made us right. And you can do the same for anyone. 
you were unconcerned with your reputation. In John 4, we confess to you that we have been more concerned with our own. Lord Jesus, we hear your call to us to go to Samaria. And Father, we confess that at times we are willing and we find ourselves clueless, unsure how to proceed. We need you, God. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. We need you to help us keep our eyes on you, to keep our ears attuned to your word. We need you to pour out your kindness into and through us. You are kinder than anyone we've ever met. And when you speak a word of repentance, you speak it out of a mouth that's filled with love. We need your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd shape us into a community that makes room for people who are like us and people who are not like us. And I pray that people will come from all over the spectrum of theological sensibility and, and holiness or unholiness, and they would come here and see you standing tall and beckoning, and they would take one step closer to you, Lord Jesus. We make much of you in our lives, God. We need you, Lord Jesus. Transform our own hearts by your grace. Make our hearts soft by your kindness. Cause us to feel secure in your holiness, your righteousness. And Lord, fill us with your spirit to overflowing that we might move with you wherever you are going. We need you, Lord Jesus, and we trust that you are more than enough. Amen.